0: Welcome back to Louisville reeds I'm your host Dave Campbell here on your community radio station, on six point five FM, WFMPLP Louisville. A show-defining episode today. Andrea Elliott's 2022 winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction, *Invisible Child: Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City*. Stay tuned.
1: I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!
2: Greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM WFMP-LP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive national and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much.
0: Welcome back to Louisville Reads, transitioning from summer into new things this fall, reading and reviewing one of the most important books I have personally ever read, Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City by New York Times journalist Andrea Elliott, winner of the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction. When I say this is one of the most important books I have ever read, and I read a lot, I'm not making that up. After two years of radio broadcast, if there is one book on the old Read and Succeed or Louisville Reads schedule that I absolutely want you to read, Invisible Child is that book. You will never look at the United States the same way again. You will want to get out of your seat and help. Speaking of getting out of your seat and helping, the annual Give for Good Louisville fundraising campaign is coming up on Thursday, September 15th and Forward Radio needs your support. Go to Give for Good Louisville at any time on that day and donate $10 or more to help us reach our goal of $4,000. Forward Radio is a listener-supported community radio station. We rely solely on your support, and we thank you so much for your generosity that has sustained us for now over five years. Also a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the program and you hear on Louisville Reads or any of the shows you hear on Forward Radio, 106.5 FM, WFNPLP Louisville, you can make a tax-deductible monetary donation at any time. Please visit forwardradio/donate to support the cause and make community radio part of your 2022 or 2023 financial plan. Also visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads, that's L-O-U, Reads FM. Visit us on Twitter at Lou Reads FM. Visit us on Instagram at Lou Reads FM. Follow our YouTube and SoundCloud links to archived episodes for both Louisville Reads and the former Read and Succeed, and leave your thoughts and comments. We would love to hear from you. This is Louisville Reads. I'm Dave Campbell. The interview you are about to hear is an August 2021 conversation between African American essayist, poet, author, former convicted felon, and Yale Law School graduate Reginald Dwayne Betts and Miss Andrea Elliott investigative reporter at the New York Times about her 2022 book Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City, winner of the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction, her second Pulitzer overall, about the poverty, survival, and hope of Miss Desani Coates, a teenaged African-American girl growing up on the socioeconomic margins of homelessness and foster care in New York City, the wealthiest urban area on the planet. The host for this discussion is the author of Vince's series at the Free Library of Philadelphia. To learn more about the Free Library, please visit freelibrary.org. The conversation itself is light and jovial, but the text invisible child itself is anything but. Potentially one of the rawest, most unrelenting snapshots of the modern human condition I have ever read. And this is not literature, folks. It's journalism and non-fiction. Starting with a series of five articles in the New York Times in 2013 that later expanded into the 625-page text Invisible Child, journalist Andrea Elliott follows eight years in the life of Tasani Coates, age 11 at the beginning of the book and entering adulthood at the end, as her and her mother Chanel arrive at the Auburn Family Residence Homeless Shelter in Brooklyn, New York in 2012. The last stop on a socioeconomic death spiral begun nearly four generations before when her great-grandfather returned a decorated veteran of World War II but, on account of his skin color, was forced to work as a janitor versus using the automotive repair skills he learned in the service. Alongside, or at least in proximity to, Dasani and Chanel in the shelter are her stepfather Supreme and her seven other siblings, all living the same dream of one day leaving the shelter and having a home, or at least an apartment, of their own again. The obstacles they face, however, are formidable. The completely insidious and ever-present framework of systemic racism, seemingly embedded into almost every interaction they have with literally anybody outside of themselves. Drug addiction, for starting with crack cocaine in the 1980s and 90s, giving way to opioids in the 2000s. Gentrification, as the once working-class black neighborhoods of Brooklyn they pine to return to are priced into new enclaves of wine-tasting white Manhattanites. And lastly themselves, as they find the personalities and logic they have forged to survive on the mean streets of Greater New York don't necessarily translate into language or logic that the college educated social services agencies has to get them off said streets can't even understand. Throughout it all, and of the utmost credit to Eliot's almost Robert A. Carl like journalism, is Dasani and her family continually cycle through evictions, addictions, custody and court battles, foster care and gang warfare. The story that emerges is that somehow they never lose their connection to one another in the sense that being homeless and being familyless are two extremely different things. And if one has to leave their family to leave poverty, maybe in some mysterious way they become poorer still. In 2021, nearly 1.4 million American schoolchildren were living in homeless shelters, and their stories were invisibly interwoven into the fabric of nearly every community in the United States. You and I both know Adesani and know her family as well. We have seen them in the supermarket at the park on a bus or subway at an intersection we in our privilege and position have always been visible to them they through andrea elliott's pen are now visible to us this is louisville Reads. i'm dave campbell
1: welcome to the free library of philadelphia online my name is jason freeman and i'm excited to be here to introduce tonight's author andrea elliott an investigative reporter at the new york times Andrea Elliott won the 2007 Pulitzer Prize for feature writing for a series of articles on Sheikh Reda Shata, an Egyptian-born Imam living in Brooklyn. She formerly worked as a staff writer at the Miami Herald, where she covered immigration and Latin American politics. Uh, She joins us tonight with Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City. Based on her 2013 five-part series for the New York Times on the plight of children experiencing homelessness, in New York City, this debut book, according to a recent New York Times review, goes well beyond her original reporting in both journalistic excellence and depth of insight, and quote to document eight harrowing years in the life of a girl named Dasani, who's helping her family navigate the disastrous effects of widening income equality and a disappearing social safety net. That review continues, quote, the reporting has an intimate, almost limitless feel to it, end quote, and that the result is a rare and powerful work whose stories will live inside you long after you've read them. Tonight's author will be in conversation with Reginald Duane Betts. Mr. Betts is a Yale Law School graduate and is the author of a memoir and three poetry collections, including the award-winning Felon. So let's get to it. Andrea Duane, thank you both so much for being here and the screen is all yours.
3: This is kind of cool i gotta say that um one i'm honored to be here with you and um and and i feel like i would be remiss not not to start it this way um you know we we write and we work and i think the reasons why we do it like sort of stretch and extend and and so i just wanted to publicly um thank you for doing this and just acknowledge that um it's a lot, you know, and family is really important, and um, and I don't want to be like uh, whatever I might be, but you know, it's a, a um, a eulogy, um, mm-hmm. about your dad in the Washington Post, and I, and I just feel like I want to acknowledge it partly because yep. thank you, you know, that's way that's the way we think about the Thanks lives so that we've lived, you know. So I want yes. to say condolences as we start.
2: Thank you so much, Dwayne. I really appreciate that, Dwayne knew that uh a few two weeks ago my father who is very very dear to me died unexpectedly and um he was very important to my work so i feel him in the room right now and i really appreciate you saying that
3: and, and to open this up because i know a lot of people who will be in this talk who may have read um the congratulations on the cover story that was in the new york times magazine which is a great introduction um to the book some people may have read that some people may have read the earlier piece but they might not have so just Can you just give us a a brief take on, like, like who Dasani is um, first, you know?
2: Sure, yes. So, Invisible Child follows eight years in the life of Dasani Coates, who was 11 years old and homeless when I met her in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. She was growing up in a neighborhood that was very much a new version of Brooklyn, the gentrified Brooklyn that has become a kind of famous symbol of that whole Phenomenon, and it's um, a neighborhood much like many other parts of urban America that are is increasingly divided between rich and poor. She was one of twenty two, more than twenty two thousand homeless kids, when I when I met her, and I wanted to find a way into this story because I found it stunning that, and I kind of stumbled upon this statistic, Duane. I was. I had been reading, rereading Alex Kotlowitz's There Are No Children Here, which is a book from the 80s. And I kept thinking, "What? What? how much has changed? Because this book was from about Chicago and these two brothers in Henry Horner houses uh, in 1986. 20 years later, what's really changed? And actually it turned out that we had the exact same child poverty rate as that period in 2012, the same, which was around one in five kids, which is the highest child poverty rate of, any wealthy, almost any wealthy nation in the world. And so, um, and the costs are great to society when you have roughly a fifth of the f- future workforce growing up in adversity. And so that's what got me started. But right in New York we had this homeless crisis and 22,000 kids, if you think about it, that's, that, is a comp- that is a crowd that would fill Madison Square Garden and there would be overflow. So I just wanted one. And I was standing outside her shelter talking to families. She walked out with her mother and I was basically hooked on that family because they captivated me just from the very moment I met them. They were uh, and continued to be just full of surprises and electricity and all kinds of wisdom and look, whether they were a poor family or a, or I was writing about them in a religious context or I was writing about them as people in Fort Greene, it didn't really matter the way in, the entree. The The thing I arrived at was just pure fascination. Um, Chanel, Dasani's mother, who's named after the perfume, she's kind of a walking poet. Um,
3: yeah, she was, she was cool. She has a lot of character.
2: She kind of, she lights up. She lights up the page. That's what I feel. But every time I started to write about it, I would feel it like, yeah, just excited. Uh, Dasani is another firecracker in her own way. She just had, you know, I'm a mother. I have two children. I know how hard it is to draw them out. And um, my kids like to talk, but a lot of kids don't. And I had interviewed a lot of children at that point. I'd gone around. I been, um, I've cr- I had crossed state lines. I would looked in different places for the right story. And almost no kid did what Dasani did, which was to, t- she wanted to narrate her story. She wanted to tell me her story. She was so full of words. And um, I remember one of the first quotes she gave me about the room they were living in. This is a family of 10 crammed into a room in a decrepit city run shelter. Um, in one of the richest cities in the world, where nearly half of New Yorkers were living um, near or below poverty. There were mice running around the room and roaches, and the family had to hang their food from the ceiling in um, plastic bags. And, um, you know, she was just a survivor. She was, but also someone who could reach beyond those circumstances, who wanted to be oh. beyond... Um, her situation into other worlds. And like, like anyone does. Um, And I, I sorry. Yeah, no, the, the series that ran. So I followed her for um, a year, a series ran in the New York times, a five, five part series. It was very much about that. It was about that room, that shelter, that experience of Dasani living with nine family members in one room, a few blocks from townhouses that sold for millions. And, her trying to reach for more and this unfair burden that had been placed on this kid but what I realized as I embarked on the book and what the book I think does at least what it did for me writing it I will say is it showed me the much broader texture of that story of the history of this family of what it meant of what it really meant to be homeless that it wasn't just a label that it was an invitation to understand so many other things that are go beyond this way beyond this family that go into systemic structures that keep families like this in the situation you,
3: have you heard this line i can i'm i just heard it again recently too it was like um i used to live in a world now i live in public housing hmm. um and i'm so mad that i can't think of who said
2: it I but used it, to live in the world and now I live in public housing. And that's so funny because Auburn Shelter was in the middle of public housing. It was well, crowded.
3: one of the things that you get in the book and one of the things that you get in the story is, is one, how challenging it was even to get to public housing. And so when we think about who we see and who we don't see, I think sometimes we think about public housing as being, um, like, why are you still in public housing? Why are you living in section eight? And I think one of the things that, um, that you helped like animate is the way in which it is actually a struggle sometimes to get to public housing. Um, one, the the sort of cost, because you still have to make pay some costs. Um, but two, the burden it is to get to the situation that allows you to be able to pay that cost and, and to get off of the waiting list and to just be able to move in that way. And so I thought I thought that um that, that line I thought it was really profound. But then it made me your 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 book and the and the times piece. Made me think that it's a world outside of public housing, and and I know people who are homeless, who have been homeless, and I realize that um, invisible child is an indictment not just on, not invisible child is not just an indictment on the system, but I think the mm-hmm. invisible implies the, to, to all of the ways we fail to see, and so I guess one of the things I I, I would like to ask you is um, it feels Dickensian in a way. Mm-hmm. And 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 spending so much time in this world and writing so beautifully about it, um, I wonder how do people how how have people responded? Not just um, like Dasani and her family, but have you ever have you ever been able to like talk to other folks who live in that world and see how they respond to to telling their stories?
2: Oh, I mean, I could still be there with my notepad and my pen writing down these stories, I um, alluded to this in the original series. I said, uh, you know, gentrification has this way of erasing history. People come in as if they've discovered the place. Dasani's there as a homeless kid, randomly placed in a shelter. However, she had roots that reached deeper into Fort Greene than many people. In Fort green. four green, she went four generations back, um, and so I alluded to in the series because I remember writing uh, something like her family history would fill volumes were it ever told, and then <laughs> and then I tried I set out to do it in two years and eight years later fourteen thousand records later school report cards dental records every agency's interaction with the family one hundred and thirty two hours of audio later. 28 hours I actually logged this stuff a video later because I you messed me, you messed
3: me up. you messed because me, I was going to ask you a question about like wait a <laughs> minute what does it mean <laughs> my to, process yeah and, and, the, and not even your process right but it's, it's this fascinating thing like the Sonny wants to tell a story and she has something that most of us don't which is that she now has insight in the, the process that it takes in terms of how do you accumulate enough information to tell a story you know and I just wanted to know like not so much as the process yeah. but one the, the the raw data you know like like everybody wants to be a writer and they'd be like you am gonna write me a book and they have no idea where to begin to marshal facts i am not a journalist i'm more of a fabulous
2: uh,
1: <laughs> and
3: and 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 i and i recognized though that when i started doing some long form stuff and working with the new york times magazine and people be like these people are crazy they'd be like well how do you know that's true <laughs> <laughs> but fact checking will teach you that you saying oh, it yeah. is not sufficient, right? right. And so, what no, I wonder no. though is like, how do you, how do you, um, like, how do you go about understanding how much data is needed? Yeah. To tell the story, you know. I mean,
2: it's just, um, I am an insecure over reporter, so I just always assume I don't have it right, and I obsess and obsess and obsess. At one point, my editor, Kate Medina, I call her Kate the Great at Random House. I think this was like five years ago. She said, I think this story has taken possession of you. <laughs> but I mean, I I have timelines. Uh, that's one way I do it. That go back, they are hundreds of pages long. So um, a great colleague of mine at the New York Times, Benjamin Weiser taught me this back when I was like on Metro doing court stuff with him. He's brilliant. He said, anytime, if you're working on a big story and he really knew how to do that, anytime anything happens, plug it into the timeline it doesn't matter how granular how small how big because once you what you start to see with the timeline in mine became color-coded so policy was in gray um the family things that events that happened to the entire family were in yellow uh,
3: tell us again what you put the timeline on did you 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 put just it a in a word in
2: document so i would just plug things in um uh certain sets of records were green other sets of records were red and So I could track the sourcing and then I would do the date and what happened. And then um, I basically arrayed that timeline uh, against a whole wall of the New York Times. This was just for the series, but now I have one for the book. What you can see is you can start to see connections between events that are small, that are in the family and huge events. Um,
3: All right, now you got to prove this. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I know. As soon as I said that, I was like... um, Yes, I mean I remember, you know, certain things colliding, for instance, I have to go back and look now, but the crack ad- epidemic for instance. Um, mm-hmm.
3: yeah.
2: and uh, you know and I should
3: tell I should tell the audience one thing that I, I found yes. really impressive is that the one thing I dis- the one thing that frustrates me about conversations about poverty from from um, the public space Tell me. I mean first they always overlap with conversations about drug addiction. But I grew up in a very mean place, and I don't mean I grew up in a necessarily uber violent place or a necessarily deeply impoverished place, but like a friend of mine, Jericho Brown, has a poem that says the eighties that shot words into the dictionary like crackhead. And this is how we talked about people. Um and you, you feel it in a book and you feel it in the in the, in the um the cover story about how yeah. Dasani was was navigating that tension, and I think what you did a, a excellent job of in terms of how this overlaps with the war on drugs and how this overlaps with other things that stigmatize folks is that you were able to tell Chanel's story, and she had like this kind. Of, she was bubbly, you know what I mean. She was like she wasn't. Um, oh yeah. I feel like it was a a real danger of um, of writing a, a a book like this, and and um, and not. Caring for the people that you wrote about, and and I don't mean like caring for them like you know, you invite them home for dinner or to the barbecue, which you which you may do, but I mean like caring for them
2: like (laughs) oh yeah you know
3: like seriously. (laughs) Sure, you don't have
2: to. I in my case, we there was a lot of overlap in our lives of just being together, and mostly me in their space. But they know my children. They've they've had many dinners with us. I mean, I feel that yes um but i hear what you're saying you know what's so interesting you used the word dickensian before Dwayne. the condition- i was just trying
3: to sound intelligent
2: no but <laughs> yeah right well so am i by the way uh, that's our downfall why don't we just try to put that those thoughts aside and just speak our truths i mean you know but no you're no, not but you're
3: but no dickensian the, the, like charles dickens has started a book that's like i would i started reading um oliver twist to my son and, and I got the page two. And he was like, "Oh, wait a minute! Uh-huh. His mother died. His father died, and he had to work in a factory." We only on page two. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> "So that's why I feel like I feel like the Sonny story is Dickensian in that way." You know, it's like a lot. But like, go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: No, no. I I was I wrote the word down when you said it because it's people said this also about the series, and it was there were these shocking. there there were the conditions of their room were shocking to anyone, including them, by the way, in the very beginning, but you have to survive that. So you become inured to it. And I think the challenge with a story like this, and this goes to your point about drug addiction as well. um, And I have a sibling who has struggled all his life with the serious addiction. And so, and I, um, it's not, it's very familiar territory to me. I think the way there are many dangers, as you just pointed out, with a book like this. Um, There's a lot of traps to fall into. And I think that the challenge again and again is to try to go deep enough inside the experience of the people you're writing about, which you can't ever fully know. You can't, um, but you just try. So that when we experience that horrible room at the very beginning of the book, We experience it at first as a shocking thing, but then Dasani's inside it. And then Dasani is navigating her way around it. She's getting the bottle. She's feeding the baby. And I took it another step forward. And this took a few years because we kept going back to that room and talking about it and talking about it where is her agency? And where is her dignity? Where's her sense of agency? Where's her sense of agency was, I'm going to attack these mice, and I'm going to kill them every single week. And in the beginning, when she used to talk about that with me, I would get like freaked out because it's like, don't tell me about smashing the no. eyes out one more time. I had a,
3: I had a he, mouse crawl on me in prison. One, you, and- I'm in prison. And listen, it horrified me it was one mouse i was in a and it was a field mouse and i was in prison and i was asleep and i felt something on my leg and i kicked and i knocked it off and i saw it run out of the room and i used to build a barricade up to like prevent anything i didn't know they didn't have a spine and so when i read that part it was two things that struck me is that um even in describing it reminded me in some ways of like black boy but but just in describing um or, or maybe it's native son but it reminded me of is in describing her response to it it was even dignity in that because because ultimately you have to get by but i also i think that like the whole family was like how do we organize our life organize our lives in a way in which this chaos is not determinative of, of what we do every day and so you 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 like separate the space in the house to create room for yourself everybody has a little space and and you do your homework on that space even if it means you just sit there and you do your homework sitting on a mattress. I thought that um, and this is why I thought it was Dickensian. know, not I don't think of Dickensian as as like depressing necessarily. I think of Dickensian as like when you write a story about somebody who finds a way through the worst kinds of circumstances, and 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 I thought that that what was powerful about it is that it was so much of her attempting to do that, and and it's hard, you know, and and that's what came across to me too how. It is really hard to make your way through in some circumstances, but I, I, I felt a person pushing them to do it, whether it was supreme or Chanel or her like it, it came through. Um, even in the space of 5000 words and that's why I know the folks who are watching now and listening will, will really enjoy the book.
0: For those who have us, this is an October 2021 interview with New York Times investigative journalist Andrea Elliott about her 2022 winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction, Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City. The interview itself is hosted by African-American essayist and poet Reginald Dwayne Betts, courtesy of the Free Library of Philadelphia. To learn more about the Free Library, please visit freelibrary.org. To listen to this entire interview, please visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads FM.
3: I keep cutting you off because I don't want you to give all of the good stuff away. Ha <laughs> good.
2: <laughs> no, definitely I won't. Um, I think you and I would agree most likely that another trap of this kind of story tends to be this like escape from poverty, you know, romance that people have in their minds, that that's the story we celebrate. The, the one kid who made it, made it out versus all these kids who are just as talented, but who for whatever reason. And I, think there are many reasons that are very clear um, that have to do with th- the problems of the neighborhood the lack of access to better education to better job opportunities to basic housing only two percent of Americans are um, housed in 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 either section 8 or public housing at this point my father um, created and helped to implement section 8 so that's what he did as general counsel of HUD and it's Something that's I never talked about publicly. And I wasn't going to talk about, and then he died. It's so interesting, and I and we we talked about it only a little bit here and there as I was working on the book because, you know, I I this is my book and that was his thing, but and there's flaws with section eight, but look, it does a lot to lift people out of poverty to have a voucher to get you pay part of your rent paid or most of it uh, paid. And Dasani's family actually benefited off of um, this program, benefited from it twice in major ways. So housing is so, so, so central, right? To their, to, their, um, to their lives. And this we have just such a shortage of affordable housing. So how do you, with a family that also, if you go back to her great grandfather, June, who came to Brooklyn at a time when everything was redlined, he had fought, in World War II, he had survived three battles. He'd come back um, as a Buffalo soldier at, the t- at a time when the military was segregated to the laws of Jim Crow after fighting Nazis abroad, comes to Brooklyn, and the GI Bill's just been passed and can't get a mortgage. I mean, that's where I think...
3: But This, is, door- this is actually where, you know, it's interesting. This is where, and what's really powerful about that story, I'm sorry, keep talking.
2: No, 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 please, please jump in. No,
3: so my wife told me that I have um, the very masculine habit of interrupting people more intelligent than me. And I was like, I'm a genius. And she was like, that is what MacArthur said. I did not call you a genius. I called you my husband and you need to stop cutting me off. And so I'm sorry for cutting you off. Keep, keep going. I,
2: I, I am uh, guilty of interrupting people all the time, so. No, please, I want, you were about to say something about something powerful. I, would,
3: anyway. I was going to say what's really powerful about that is like, I, I do think that like Ta-Nehisi Tana, um, Tana Coates' piece yeah. on, on on reparations, and, and I think what he tried to do is sort of track this narrative of redlining, and he also tried to place it within families, but what makes your book really powerful is that when we place narratives within these larger structural arguments we make, it feels like we chose the narrative for that argument. But the story you're telling illuminates the way in which, no, it's a lot of invisible stories that overlap on this structural injustice. I mean, imagine fighting in a war and not being able to get a, a loan to buy a house and how that undercuts, you know, generational um, wealth and, and, and housing security. He,
2: he settled for renting in four Houses, which Sonny would come to call the projects. That's where her roots began four generations earlier was And he couldn't work as a mechanic because labor unions were largely exclusive of black workers. And he was trained as a mechanic, but he wound up working uh, as a janitor. And if you look at the gap in those two wages over 20 years, he lost at least nearly $200,000 over that 20 year period. I have his wage records. If you look at what he wound up being able to earn versus what he should have earned. And so it's so essential, but it's, it's, I love that you point out that sometimes people try to some books read like you're fitting the story within the narrative I promise you and I say this with just it's not even humility or anything it's just the truth I this story showed me this Dasani showed me the story at every step of the way her family's history showed me the story I didn't know the story I didn't I kept trying to understand certain things and, and then a new layer would be revealed and a new layer and this is why I kept going and I, I i don't think I understood the arc until five years in and went with a genealogist back into the family's history to the white enslavers um, uh, in North Carolina of June Sykes's great grandfather who was born enslaved and understood that arc. I mean, all of these pieces are interconnected and it's, um, I think that that's maybe hopefully why the book reads that way. It's because I, I didn't know what the narrative was. I no, it's, saw it's, things it's, it's, happen it's, it's, in real time and then tried to make sense of them, you know?
3: What's beautiful about it is like, um, I remember being in prison and learning about like, narrative nonfiction. And, and you know, what I've realized is that part of me not knowing what it was is that um, we don't have access to tell stories in certain ways to young people. Yeah. And so they don't necessarily know how stories exist, and so what I was really being introduced to was like James Baldwin and things like that. And I think the work you're doing and, and and you know fits into that tradition, and what I love about this particular story is that. Like Dasani gets to witness that and 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 Dasani gets to think about and her whole family really but gets to think about how they'll tell their own stories. And how stories get shaped and stories get told, I am supposed to go to the Q&A I have more questions. Um, but just to acknowledge that the audience exists. Um this is the first event. I should I should really say that this is the first of many events for a, a book that I know is gonna be like well honored in, in the oh. year to come. And so I'm I'm glad folks are taking the time to come. But um Michael, I'm not gonna say people's last name. Um I'm gonna keep asking questions myself too, but I just wanna weed the audience in so they feel involved. But Michael says, um, As a writer i'm curious about how you will recommend balancing the humanity of your subjects against the realities of their environment every person deserves to be represented with dignity and humanity i'm gonna answer this too but how do you avoid the glorifying the struggle of being poor i actually don't know how you glorify the struggle of being poor like i don't know if you like do you like tell a story about somebody who like um i actually don't know how you glorify the struggle of being poor any more than you glorify the struggle of being rich so i'm gonna give my response to that question and i know that we've talked about this a bit but I just want to give my response, because I, I actually think like we talk in, in cliches unintentionally and and, and and what I think the question really asks is, like, how do you write in a way that doesn't make us believe you hate your subjects. But I think one of the ways you do that is not to hate your subjects.
1: because
3: I, that. I know that's what I'm saying. It's like, I don't I don't think anybody like I don't know what it means to glorify the struggle of being poor. And it's weird because nobody ever says that when they write a piece about Bezos, they are glorifying the triumph of being rich, right? It's only that when we talk about poor people that if you show them being triumphant, if you show them being successful, if you show them really making it, even if you do it well, people ask you, are you trying to glorify the triumph of being poor? And it's a weird it's a weird fascination that we have with, with believing that we must somehow Denigrate people who suffer and so maybe to flip that question a bit, I will ask you, did you feel. The need to to put more attention on some of the worst aspects of Chanel's life or Supreme, Supreme's life, as you tried to tell this story, because it's like a real balance, even in, in, a, in a cover story where like you can see. Uh, this tension between DeSani and Supreme and how Supreme is moving and controlling the money, but but you really resist trying to stigmatize Supreme for those decisions that he's making around how, like the, the, that, that check might be what he owns. And so I wonder, like, how did you navigate that tension? So maybe not how did you navigate the tension of glorifying the poor, but how did you navigate the tension of not falling into the, the pitfall of, of denigrating struggle in a way that seems justified because you think you would have did it better?
2: I think it's really important in a story as complex as this to um, allow the reader to experience the story and to not interfere by imposing judgments and it's hard because we all bring our lens right we're all human I think the closer I get to a, a person just in terms of feeling like I really Uh, If I feel great, great empathy for somebody I'm writing about, and I've done this, you know, I've been in journalism for more than 20 years doing kind of long-form work like this where I immerse in people's lives. Um, My rule of thumb is just the closer I get, the um, harder I'm going to have to work when it comes to writing to make sure that I'm cognizant of any potential... uh, you know, I don't like words like balance and objectivity. And I I don't think anyone does anymore like those words. (laughs) So fashionable (laughs) to say objectivity doesn't exist. Fine. We all agree. But like to be even more precise, you know, let's have many different people read um, this, this book and respond to it so that I am making sure that I've I've done right by it. Chanel is very brave. She never once asked me to keep anything out. She said the truth hurts. She said that again and again. And it's interesting, you know. People often ask me, "How do you think your following them affected things, changed things?" One thing I would say is
3: people ask you that, including people in the Q and A. So that's the next yes. question. All Actually. right, fair
2: <laughs> enough. Yes. I mean, sh- there's there's no question that me being in the room is going to have some kind of immeasurable or measurable impact. And it depends. And there were many, many different situations I, I was with. I still am in their lives. I mean, this was a nearly a decade of reporting. Um,
3: They like your cousins. I mean, at least like play cousins.
2: I mean, we, I slept on their floor at times. I ate food with them. It's so
3: funny that you didn't get that joke.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I didn't really get that joke. You're right.
3: (laughs) Uh, But your response was um, a a definition of what a play cousin is though. You know how like, um, one of the interesting things happens in a community, in in a poor community, but around black folks though, is you got people that's related to you for real. And you got play cousins, you'd be like, who is that? Oh, that's my cousin. And it's not really your oh, cousin. Okay, okay, and, okay, okay. And and what I get from your book, though, is this kind of intimacy that you got with these folks that is endearing, but I think is also it's also human. And so when you talk about they know who my children are, yes. when you talk about, you know, we've been around each other for a decade. i mention it because sometimes we think about our subjects and I think the audience thinks about our subjects. And we ask a question like what happened as the result of you're writing about them and like one of the things that happens that matters is is we became close yeah you know like like the world didn't necessarily shift for me or for them but like we became close i became somebody that they would call upon and they became somebody that i would call upon and that's essentially like what a play cousin is so yes so, yes so it was absolutely and honorific title. And I, have,
2: I have grown up you know with many play cousins i <laughs> have a big big Chilean family um my mother's side but anyway I mean I know I know I know what you're saying I what I wanted to say about Chanel is, it's funny what we wound up realizing she's I think this is this is potentially how me being around this is one of the ways that and I don't know what me not being around would have resulted in differently and I don't for a moment take away from her agency and her if anything I was a bother and a really annoying presence many, much of the time. I wasn't, um, it, it, I hate it when people are like, oh, do you think you're a model? Absolutely not. Was I a role model? Desani had has the most powerful role models and people like her black principal, Paula Holmes, who passed away, who was a mighty, amazing woman. Uh, her teacher, Faith Hester, her grandmother, Joni, she has remarkable role models. She would say that herself. I was this strange, being who had come in from this other place of journalism, of a different upbringing in a different city, and I was there watching and laughing and sharing and sometimes even crying with them. The, the worst moments. Um, I had a lot of really uh, intense experiences being among them, with them. But the thing that I most was struck me with Chanel was that we finally came to understand that. I was the author author of her of this book, okay, of course, but I would say to her, "But you're the author of your life, and I'm just following your life." So, so did was that in the back of her mind? And certain junctures, did she choose differently? If if I hadn't been there, would she have chosen differently? Would she have acted differently? I don't really know. All I know is that uh, I'm sort of beside the point. I know that it's an important question, but. I feel that really the book is about them, and and that's that's the what I want to talk about is the story of them, um, right?
3: And, and and I also think it's like yeah, and, I, and it's interesting because I think that I think that the role of, of of writing about humanity, and this is whether you're a fiction writer or poet or journalist, is to find a way to get in the spaces and be human in those spaces, and 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 you know, it's artifice. But if you're there long enough, it stops being artifice. You know, you around somebody for ten years, they would like Chanel was probably like, I don't yeah. know if Andre gonna write that book. I mean, she says she gonna write oh, it. Oh yeah. Book.
2: Oh, there were many times. <laughs> Trust me.
3: You know, like literally, I, I my publisher was like, my editor was like, Yo. they was like, congratulations. I was like, yeah, man, I'm gonna get this book done. And when you said it took you ten years, my heart was like, oh, I got a shot. And finishing, you know,
2: No, uh, I went from like this, this team journalist, the New York Times writing this thing to like this weird person who just always hangs around them. It's a good point. Like, this is it, this got, is awkward. Like the, it got awkward, it, but not for them, but for everyone around us. It's like, what, what is, what, what is the deal?
1: Who it's is like, she? yo, was she, was she
3: writing? How long does it take to write a book? How long does it take to write a book? No wonder, no wonder, most of us aren't writers, I can't spend 10 years on one book, but, but I will say that like revealing that to all of the writers who are listening, I hope it encourages it encourages me. To believe that like like great art takes time and I I have to ask one question about sentences before before I go back to this other author question I think you have some like really lovely sentences and one of the things I, I like to believe or I like to point out is the way that like. Like you said, uh the first sentence in a Times piece, right? It says, All her life she'd been hearing about Pennsylvania. Yeah. I mean, that's a beautiful opening to a piece. She could have been hearing about anywhere. And and what I wonder is um, in terms of how you organize ideas in the sentences, this is like really me just inside baseball turning this into a craft lesson.
2: Wonderful. I love it.
3: But, but how, how
2: you do you approach, <laughs> you know, like, how do you
3: approach this sentence? You know, how do you approach wow. uh, creating a, a story out of all of that mountain, the mountain of data um, that you collected?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I suffer and uh, some of it's suffering, some of it's delightful. A lot of the time it's just writing and then well, I, I don't call myself a writer. I call myself a rewriter. I don't, I've never written something that just lasted as it, in its original form. I mean,
3: you got to go to poetry.
2: You, you See. put it down. Oh, maybe I, that's my next act. You put it down. Uh, so I know myself well enough now to know that whatever I write, however decent I think it is, no matter what, if I give it some room to breathe by the next morning, there are changes. There's So it's, it's ear And I read my stuff out loud and just over and over and over until it starts to sound right. But it doesn't usually for a while. And there's a lot of moving things around and, and stuff will just happen like, but you have to kind of give into the suffering of it (laughs) (laughs) for lack of a better word. Sometimes it's more just sort of chaos, but it's like, but I loved this story so much. I loved the people in the story and their humor and their wisdom and their brilliance. And, um, you know, I, and also just like, just all of the ironies. And, you know, one thing I did doing is I would walk around always I still do with a notepad and write stuff down as it came to me. I never.
3: Notepad. And that that was a stupid question, but like, I got a friend who carries around a notepad and I find it. I think that he's he, you think he really writes things that he could read in that.
2: You raise a very good question. Um, at the D- In the D.C. Bureau of the New York Times, they have these little notepads that, for whatever reason, nowhere else at the paper, and this is a little bit dated, but it may still be the case, but back when I was doing stuff down there, I, I was covering, um, I was actually on the Guantanamo story once upon a time. I remember just grabbing whole stacks of them because they were so little. I think it's important to have them be portable, but you can even do it in your phone. Sometimes I leave voice memos. It's just that it's that the thought is fleeting, otherwise. And if you, I had something called train notes. This was in the very beginning, actually. It was a special notepad, train notes that I carried with me that I only. Would well, be
3: an excellent sociologist. I mean, even.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if the sociologists would agree, but. Uh, I'm a bootleg yes.
3: sociologist, so you know, I, I, I'm, I'm like almost certified.
2: <laughs> well, so on the train, there's a 45 minute ride between Fort Green, Brooklyn, and where I was living uptown and up on the Upper West Side. And I would just put everything I was feeling down uh, in that notepad. Um, and a lot of those initial observations w- made their way into the book. And this was from 2012 years and years ago, but when it's fresh, and when you're new and attending to what you're noticing as a newcomer to the story, versus where you are having been eight years with the family. There's, those are two different things. And I feel like they're both essential to good narrative. And the great thing about the passage of eight years is that that you have the privilege of this incredible experience of, of having seen time pass and growth happen. And I mean, this kid grew up in front of me, you know? Yeah. Um,
0: For those who are joining us, this is an October 2021 interview with New York Times investigative journalist Andrea Elliott about her 2022 winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction, Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City. The interview itself is hosted by African-American essayist and poet Reginald Dwayne Betts, courtesy of the Free Library of Philadelphia. To learn more about the Free Library, please visit freelibrary.org. To listen to this entire interview, please visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads FM.
3: No, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, it's, and it's actually, I like the way you connected it both to, because sometimes we think of like these craft questions of of how you do something. It's just about sausage making, but it's all it's actually about how to make yourself more equipped to notice the thing that you care about. And you, you can't write about something. You can't attend to something. You know, I like, usually write about something, but I like, you know, you can't attend to something for that long without deeply caring about it and the ways in which you care matter and like the idea of being able to take train notes and the idea of being able to like use a small notepad to capture things i think it's how you get a line like this and then i'm gonna ask this question from the audience early in the piece you say this and it's so beautiful right because you talk about irony the the reader wouldn't necessarily know from the first sentence why this is ironic right none of the sunny seven siblings had ever left home and it's a line that's both about having like the question is, I wonder if separate from the audience, from Ryan, he says, I wonder if separating Dasani from her family in order to offer her a good education is both harmful and beneficial. Every child should have access to such an education without separating from their family, right? But what's, what's dope about that sentence is you're talking about the fact that they had never left home to get the education that she had, but they also hadn't been separated from their, from their family. You know, you had times when the mother was gone or the father was gone, but I think it's something powerful in arguing that like like staying together matters and it's and it's actually an accomplishment. Cause some people think having never left home is not an accomplishment. But what gets revealed in the pieces, having never left home also is an accomplishment because it is quite easy to be yes. like permanently separated from your people, you know?
2: There's nothing more important, I think, to most of us than these bonds of family. And I think that's just the way human beings are. Um, And we do it in different ways. Some of us have chosen families, right? Doesn't have to be blood kin. For Dasani, her family was her system of survival. She went through all these other systems with names that suggest help, like public assistance, like child protection, like criminal justice. You think about the names, right? Attached to those systems those to her were systems you had to navigate, you had to survive. In order to do that, she relied on her siblings and her parents, and they really considered one another one being. It wasn't, there's no, there was so little individualism there. It was just an incredible experience of togetherness. And it wasn't at all pretty sometimes, right? I mean, there are a lot of you know every family. Can you imagine living in one room with your nine family members? I mean, my brothers and I would have murdered one another. I mean, so we, and we practically did anyway. So I mean, uh, you know, it's intense the, the relationships in those families, but but beautifully so. And when she left to go to Hershey, Pennsylvania, that was a lot. That was. To her mind, that was too much to ask of her. She shouldn't have had to leave in order to get the education she deserved. And she doesn't, by the way, want to escape. And this is the problem with the word escape when people link that word to narratives around poverty that you escaped this neighborhood, you got out. Dasani doesn't want, she's proud of her family, her neighborhood, her streets. And by the way, as a homeless person, she's not without a home she said it to me home is family it's the streets I grew up on it's the people who've had my back ever since I was little that is home and she wants to thrive in 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 that home and she's doing it in her own way right now she recently she became the first of the children to graduate from high school and she started at LaGuardia Community College so she's staying community
3: college Straight up, like, you know, I mean, I went to community college, I, I, I did pretty well, then I went to University of Maryland, you know, a lot of people denigrate what that journey looks like, and, and I think, I hope that Dasani knows that, like, it's a legit journey, you know, and, and, and it has really unpredictable destinations, but, 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 you know, pleasant ones. I met my but wife, my wife went to community college.
2: But you also went to Yale.
3: Yeah, no, <laughs> that was later, though. I first became, I guess, I guess I mentioned that I went to community college cause I want Desani to know if she's watching this, Yeah. But I was somebody when I went to community college and when people like denigrated community college, people around me, I was like, I like my professors. I like the work that I'm doing. I am somebody in this space and this is the beginning of something. This is actually just something actually, you know, and, and like, and to know that this is something. And I feel like that's what she was saying about home. Like I, I, mean, I have a home and and my my siblings and my mama and supreme are something and i and i feel like your book gives them like that dignity and that's one of the things that's that's frequently missing you know when you look at somebody that's poor you always judge them by what's missing and never give give credence to what's there and I, and i feel like in your writing you actually do the opposite you give credence to what's there um even if what's there is 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 a struggle you know Can i
2: say something just thank you so much for saying that you said earlier something about how you know you you spend this much this much time with a family you can't help but care. I think I would go further and say that not only is it fine to care, and it, I think it's essential in a way to develop. I used to see in my you know days as a an old school, whatever, I am an old school reporter, no matter what, it's shoe leather reporter through and through Metro is my home. I've always done those kinds of stories, you know, and I was at the Miami Herald, but you had, we, we, you know, back in the day, I mean, it was like, I'm the reporter with the reporter hat on. You're the person I'm writing about. I ask the questions, you answer them. I'm here to do the story on deadline. My evolution has taken me in a very different direction where I no longer see that, that dividing line as not only is it, not necessary. I almost see it as an impediment. I think that the writing, the power of the story rises or falls on the level of intimacy that you feel for it. And it's not only okay, it's almost necessary to feel. Whether it's caring for them or not or feeling angry or whatever it is, you know you you have to take that in in order to have it um, work. in in a clear and powerful manner in the writing, I think. It's not at all a perfect process. And there are many checks and balances and there's a need for balance and all that. But, you know, if that makes sense, I think it's...
3: Yeah, yeah, no, it does. And so um, the last words I would just say is is really thank you for what you've written and what what you've offered to us. You know, I just wanna say thank you.
2: Thank you, and I wanna thank Dasani who I believe is watching, and Chanel, and Supreme. And-
3: I really enjoy myself. Thank you. I Thank hope you. the
2: audience I did I hope they did too. <laughs> Thanks.
0: That's it for this episode of Louisville Reads. Remember, visit giftforgoodlouisville.org on September 15th. It's not about the books on here. It was always about you. This is Louisville Reads. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening.